Welcome to Logistics Executive TV. I'm Cassandra Lee, the Global Managing Partner for the Executive Recruitment and HR Division. And today we're going to be having a chat about some ESG legislation and modern slavery. It's certainly topics that every organisation is focused on right now and it has varying different impacts depending upon what part of the sector you're in and, and just how broad your organisation is. But I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Morse, who is the CEO of Unchained Solutions in Australia. Stephen, welcome to LETV. Thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Cassandra. I really look forward to our interview today on this important topic. It most certainly is an important topic. So, Stephen, give me a bit of a heads up for all of our viewers. Tell us about Unchained Solutions, what you guys are really focused on and the full remit that you have. Sure. Well, Unchained Solutions, we're a boutique uh, professional services firm. We're based in Macquarie Park in Sydney. Um, and our main focus really is to work with organisations, regardless of their size and their sector, to address the risk of modern slavery in light of two Australian legislations, the Commonwealth Modern Slavery Act and then the New South Wales Modern Slavery Amendment Act of 2021. So all our services then, uh, we have a turnkey solution uh, that, we, uh, that we've got services in strategy, analysis, uh, training, documents and research. And we uh, design and customise all those service elements to work with our clients depending on their, their needs, um, their maturity with the legislation, how advanced they are, uh, what level of alignment perhaps they might need if they're a small entity and they don't have to report, but they need to actually demonstrate some level of compliance with their corporate clients. Excellent. And now, given that the legislation may be New South Wales and Australia, the implications actually are far-reaching and, and broader across Asia Pacific and global. So you may be needing to comply with Australian laws, but the thing is that you need to be aware of what the impacts are and being able to have that traceability globally. Is that correct? That's correct. So, you know, we've uh, for a long time, we've had uh, what we would call, say, soft legislation, such as the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And these are really targets that governments and big corporates have really um, are sort of aiming to achieve. We are technically halfway through uh, the goals. So they're all due to expire in 2030. Uh, and there's been some really big disruption over the last few years during the COVID season in terms of achieving a lot of those goals. Uh, we, were, we were doing well and then uh, not so much um, uh, these days. So that that kind of soft legislation is is global and it's really being translated out um, into hard legislation such as the Modern Slavery Act here in Australia. This legislation, this type of anti-slavery human rights supply chain due diligence legislation is popping up uh, in many jurisdictions. Uh, and just this year, for example, uh, Germany, Canada, uh, and now New Zealand um, is now putting after their consultation processes now introducing legislation. And just most recently for the entire European Union, uh, for example, the Commission put forward um, their own due diligence um, directives, uh, which both govern human rights as well as environmental sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, the whole broad topic of ESG and just how encompassing that is. Every organisation has to have a focus on it. And if they actually don't have teams built in and around this, they are very quickly trying to acquire that expertise to be able to mitigate their risks because supply chains are so global and every entity is touching other countries to, to some degree, no matter what you're actually producing or what sector you're actually in, some significantly more than others. So, in its essence, what are some of the key things that, you know, people need to be implementing when it does come to like the broader ESG, but linking it through to 
being aware of the modern slavery impacts because they are so dynamic and it is something that is evolving with legislation across a myriad of different countries. Is there, you know, a particular two, three key things that, you know, that need to be able to anchor what your ESG strategy is for the modern slavery slavery elements? Sure. I think, first of all, I think governance, the governance piece is, is critical. So making sure that uh, the board of directors and the those who actually are in control or have authority to authorise and sign off on reporting components, that uh, they need to be well informed of what, what it is that uh, they need to be doing, what they need to be signing off on, and really given the, the breadth and scope of ESG matters. I mean, it's quite a big, you know, big beast if you really if you take it seriously. There are quite a number of things, and it does require a certain degree of uh, prioritisation, strategy, long-term goal thinking, uh, and also putting in place, you know, adequate executive sponsorship, uh, resource allocation, thinking, you know, realising, for example, even just an issue like modern slavery, you can't, you're not going to solve this overnight. You're not no. going to fix up your supply chain overnight. We're looking at work that needs to be done over a five to 10 year period um, because it's, it's so, the more you scratch the surface of this, these issues, the bigger uh, the, and the more complex the issue becomes. And then they all d- dovetail. So modern slavery doesn't sit in the S zone of social sustainability on its own. It very much interacts with what's going on in governance in terms of grievance mechanisms and and also to do with money laundering and those kind of issues around financial crime, as well as dovetails with environmental considerations where, for example, there could be a facility, a factory in, in a developing nation which has poor waste management, poor water, water management, and therefore is a polluter as well as putting its workforce at risk. Yeah, and I think that's one of the key things is people don't understand that, you know, modern slavery, the impact it actually has on so many, so many other areas, you know, if people aren't sort of manufacturing in another country, you know, they can sort of have a view that, well, that's not relevant for us when it actually is because of the other tenants that it's actually touching and the impacts, whether it be goods or services. It is the financing that runs in behind everything as well. And when it sort of comes back to boards, one of the things that we certainly see is is while everybody is focused on improving their governance, they aren't particularly educated around how broad ESG actually is and how significant certain tenets of particular legislation are for them and then the critical factor that it needs to play. So is there areas like with Unchained where you're just sort of really going in and consulting through the boards as to what their governance strategy actually needs to be or even just educating them on how broad ESG is versus actually running through their modern slavery programs and being able to put all the processes and, and, you know, implementing them for them? Yeah, I mean, we're primarily a solution provider, so we do work with with uh, those who are in, in governance, um, really because we, we want to make sure that the team that we're working with, which may be at the level of procurement and supply chain management and human resources, has the appropriate sponsorship and resourcing to do the work and to see it through. One of the big tensions is that uh, a lot of organisations might get started, uh, and one of the starting blocks that we have is around um, assessing gaps in the current uh, in, you know, really assessing the the level of readiness to comply with legislation. So, looking through the different uh, units uh, within a, within a company and seeing where those gaps are, and then formulating an action roadmap for them 
Um, and then part of the challenge then is making sure that there are appropriate KPIs and resourcing to seed through over, say, a two to three period initially with a view to going further. So um, that's really the level we, we do operate um, at that level of working group, um, pr primarily in reference in relation to an executive sponsor. Yeah. Okay. And so in Australia, we've got the $100 million threshold in, in terms of the, the parent company and reporting, you know, and it's purely from a reporting perspective. I know there is a contentious debate about what entity this $100 million, you know, level is, whether it's branch or parent company or what have you. Where's the legislation now? Where do you think the ruling will actually sort of end up about what this $100 million threshold actually covers? Will it end up being it's the parent company as it was intended as per the brand or do you think it will still say stay as, you know, at a branch level so it's somewhat easier for organisations to comply right now? Like where do you think we're at in the journey? Are we sort of three years away before courts are going, no, that's the way it was intended? Yeah. Get it there or well, yeah, I think uh yeah, there is yes, and we've come across that kind of level of confusion in terms of who is the reporting entity, is it the parent company in Chicago in the United States, or is it the subsidiary? And a lot of that has to do with the way that the organization structured, particularly around its um financial structuring and if it's actually registered with an Australian business number or a or a or Australian company number here in Australia. Um, you know, there there's provision within the um the criteria for the consultations. So criterion six talks about the consultation process. Um, and there is, again, confusion around what does that actually look like? What does that mean? But uh, there is an expectation that if you are reporting as a subsidiary of a larger entity that you have actually done appropriate level of consultation with your parent company or with other subsidiaries um, in there. And part, part of the whole process is then and that's the government piece is working out, are we reporting as a group or are we reporting um, as a smaller entity? Um, and I think that has to do with where where revenue is is generated. If it's if the 100 million is within Australia, very clearly then you need to report from that perspective. Um, in terms of the direction of things, well, one of the recommendations from the coming out of the statutory review is to lower the threshold to 50 million. Um, and so uh, that might not that might that might take a couple of years to to be to be uh, yeah. changed, but that will that will change the game somewhat um, in terms of capturing um, a greater constituency of of companies. Nevertheless, though, if even if there wasn't a lowering of the threshold and there was a strengthening of the sort of the requirements around due diligence, if there was a more, a greater prescription, if you like, for what companies should be doing. And I kind of wish there was because the the approach of um, taking reasonable steps whilst does have, uh, does translate out well, I think in a human rights context, doesn't necessarily translate out well in a business context where companies have the temp, are sort of more tempted to sort of think, oh, well, we'll, we'll do what is reasonable to us, um, not necessarily what is reasonable in a human rights context. So, and we are certainly seeing that. So I think regardless of a change in, in, in threshold, if companies are taking this seriously, if they're actually applying appropriate um, pressure through a collaborative process with their suppliers, then small entities should be um, do, taking steps themselves um, to actually comply with the legislation to, to some extent. Uh, and in some sectors, we are seeing, we have seen a movement in that in terms of what uh, an SME might have been asked, you know, three years ago to what they're being asked to do today. So there is a shift in the market, but I think the recommendations, if they're imp implemented, will really accelerate 
that and in terms of what smaller companies need to be doing. I think that's quite consistent with the the entire ESG process. Like, you know, organisations are becoming aware of, okay, well, we need to have a strategy. What does it mean for us? What is appropriate at our level and where we're wanting to go to? And, and then obviously sort of, you know, working along that journey. Unfortunately, a lot of them just don't realise how significant it is and don't see the commercial value that this is risk mitigation and risk mitigation equals strong yields. So, you know, it's a lot of organisations sort of see it as something they have to comply with and a task as opposed to, well, do it properly and there is actually a stronger financial yield when it's done correctly. So there's you know, that sort of change in thinking that I think needs to be done at a board level and executive leadership team level to then actually resonate and understand these are not barriers, these are benefits get with it and, you know, put the things in place so that you're continuing to grow into it and you're not going to be caught out, not just from a finance perspective, but being able to actually resonate and get that yield that commercially comes from it. Is there any particular trends across certain sectors that you're sort of seeing, like is there, you know, um, the apparel industry, given the breadth of global sourcing that they're doing and, and the quantity of factories and then the origins of a lot of apparel, whether it be from the fact, you know, from the actual fabrics or the farms where, you know, the cotton and, and the components that, you know, are coming from. Is there certain industries that are just light years ahead and is there any particular initiatives that they have come up with in, in their journey, particularly from a modern slavery perspective that you think would be beneficial to, to other sectors or industries to take note of? Sure. I mean, the spotlight has been on the fashion industry for some time now, uh, particularly following the collapse of the Rana Plaza in Dhaka, Bangladesh back in 2013. And the 10th year anniversary was, you know, back in April this year, which really sort of raised, you know, whilst sort of commemorating that event really helped to sort of think, okay, well, what, have we actually achieved much in the last 10 years? Yeah. So what have we actually achieved in the last 10 years? And I think it was a really good question. Other high consumables such as coffee, tea, um, and those, you know, those kind of consumer products, uh, there's, you know, there continues to be a lot of progress, particularly in chocolate and a chocolate scorecard, for example, is put out annually as a, as a, co- a collaboration effort uh, from, from a number of entities. Um, I think probably what's, um, what's been realised, and I think coming out of the COVID period, there was a bigger spotlight put on um, the manufacturing of PPE, uh, surgical equipment, rubber gloves. So I think health definitely has had a greater spotlight because a lot of the regulations that were put on, you know, the supply of, say, rubber gloves were relaxed in order to get the product out. Um, and so that was quite problematic. So on the one hand, we had this tension of like, how do we actually deal with our health needs in relation to the needs of protecting uh, the rights of of people making those products. So that still continues to be definitely an issue. There is a lot more going on in terms of shipping, international international shipping. Um, Shipping, uh, we did some research uh, uh, a year or so ago into shipping, and it really is kind of a bit of a law to itself in some regards, Uh, surprising the lack of... um, governance and policy, um, or at least being transparent about that, um, and adherence to any um, due diligence legislation from the shipping from shipping companies. So I think definitely there's been a spotlight on that because there has been some concerns around, yeah, different uh, environmental as well as human rights violations and, and different reports coming out. 
I think in the Australian context, uh, we're still seeing a lot of work that needs to be done. And there has been a lot of work being focused on cleaning um, and uh, with the cleaning accountability framework, uh, working with companies to help them to assess risks in subcontracting arrangements around the cleaning of office blocks, office towers, particularly commercial property, uh, real estate. Um, and I think also to a lot of, and again, I think coming out of COVID, there's been a greater emphasis on services. Um, it's it's kind of, it's easier to think about risk in terms of manufacturing of products, but what about those sort of outsourcing services um, in, in to other countries? So there's been a big emphasis on, a bigger emphasis on how do we think about service services in, say, hospitality, um, in call centres, in system support Um kind of services as well, those kind of back-end sort of hidden um, industries. Yeah. I think that's one of the, the sort of key areas that we certainly are hearing about is just how broad the process actually or, you know, the all-encompassing industry sectors. A lot of people were thinking it was just mainly goods, but it's actually all your service industries as well and what is here and what is overseas and, and where those sort of, you know, tentacles actually you know, do reach that, um, you know, if you're not a major manufacturer sourcing globally, this is not just something that, you know, is, is only adhered to them. It is even small organisations within Australia that are having subcontracting firms and, and this and that from a services perspective. It is legislation that brings in everybody because there is different levels of, you know, of how wide it actually reaches and, and what's applicable, um, you know, and what's sort of caught up in it rightly so, but it is something that every organisation, no matter who you are and what you do, needs to be aware of and needs to have a strategy. Like if ESG in its essence is not part of what you're all talking about, irrespective of your size, you need to be because there is elements that will directly impact you and it's not just the fines, it's then, you know, it's also the value proposition of what you're doing and how you're actually generating your income that everybody needs to consider. If there's one key takeaway what would it be, Stephen? What's the the one thing that you think everybody needs to be focusing on on their you know modern slavery slash ESG broader journey? Well, I think uh, definitely you need to get the foundations right. So, and the foundations aren't everything. But if you don't have your foundations, and what I mean by foundations is to, have, on the one hand, around governance, making sure that your policies are um, are adhering to, you know, and do include different human rights, uh, modern slavery, or environmental inputs. Uh, and to have a to have a really comprehensive portfolio that that actually has in place an ethical sourcing policy, for example, um, that has a grievance policy and mechanism remediation that you've actually thought through all those kinds of issues so that you are better ready to respond to a tender uh, where those questions are going to be asked about what are you actually what are you saying about yourself. Um, and then in terms of the value chain is really thinking through your business ecosystem. Where do you sit in the ecosystem of business and where do you think the risks might be? Um, it's not all bound up in the supply chain, um, as I think sometimes we think that is. And of course, that's a big piece. Um, but, you know, so having an understanding of where your suppliers are. Uh, and if you are if you have if you are small and you have no leverage, then to really start thinking through where, how you can source more sustainably. Um, more ethically in that. But also just think through uh, other risks pertaining to your operations, your facilities, and even beyond that to where, for example, where finance is coming from. What are the risks, you know, if you're dependent on finance and capital, whereas, you know, what are those risks uh, in terms of the raising of capital, as well as investments where you might be investing in something which there's going to be inherent risks. So, you know, there is a, 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 a yeah, two 
two big pieces there around governance and value chain. Um, and it's uh, part of the overall strategies to think about where you sit in the market and how you can actually contribute to effective due diligence. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, Dr. Stephen Morse, thank you so much for joining us today on Logistics Executive TV. You've certainly given our viewers a lot of insight as to what they need to do. Now, I see your QR code there so people can reach out to you and, and get in touch with you to do some things. And we'll certainly have all your contact details tagged through so that people can follow up and, and follow you and, and get further insights. But thank you very much for your sharing. It's greatly appreciated. And we look forward to seeing you again on Logistics Executive TV in the near future.